All right, friends and family, I want to get started today with our message. I told you that we were taking a break from our series that was called Esther, Made for This Moment. We're taking a one-week pause because the times are so historic, two days before a national election. I want to talk to you in, uh, on a message that is called The Separation of Church and Hate. Now, unless you've been living under a rock, inside a cave, underneath a volcano, you're aware that we are having a national election in only two more days. And because of that, uh, I really want to find out what your heart, what your disposition is going to be like on the day after the election. So one of those questions is, where are you going to be? What are you going to have for breakfast? How is your attitude going to be and when you wake up on Wednesday morning, November 4? Uh, some people are going to be elated. Some people are going to be ecstatic and overjoyed. Other people are going to be disappointed. And some people are going to be downright angry in these divided states of America. So I, I just want to say, I want to say, let's take a breath and remember an important spiritual checkpoint. And that is this. On November 4, no matter who wins, uh, your problems are not going to go away. My problems are not going to go away. Uh, they're still going to be there. And focusing on the wrong things isn't going to bring you peace and joy. Uh, government is not going to save you. Only Jesus can save you. And I will say in the divided states of America, about the only thing we can agree on is the collective breathing a sigh of relief, just saying, I can't wait until this election is over. And maybe you're feeling that way. I know I am. So let's talk about this, this topic of the separation of church and hate. Um, there was a prophet in the Old Testament. His name is Jeremiah. God inspired that prophet to write a letter to God's people who were living through a crisis. They had been taken away into exile. God's people had been judged by God for their sin, their idolatry, their disobedience. And so they'd been taken away to Babylon. And God instructed his prophet Jeremiah to write a letter to the exiles as to how they were supposed to act and think while they were living in captivity, while they were in crisis during the exile. And so these are the words of what God inspired Jeremiah to say. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. If the nation of Israel was in crisis, notice God's word. He said to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Friends, that is called the sovereignty of God. God is in control of nations and much more than we think we are in control. God says, I carried you into exile to Babylon. And he says, well, while you're there, what are you to do? Verse five says, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. So, uh, get ready to, to stay a long time. You're going to be there and it's not a time to think, hey, I'm just going to have my bags packed, ready to go back to Israel. You're going to be there a while. And as Jeremiah continues, he says, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give daughters, give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. In other words, it's not a time of crisis. It's not a time to hunker down and to say, uh, we're not going to increase. We're not going to have families. We're not going to grow up and get married. 
uh, we are just going to be stuck in this crisis. It says, no, Mary, be, give your sons and daughters in marriage. Let them have children. Increase in number while you're there in Babylon. Increase and do not decrease. And he goes on and then he says this, and this is my favorite verse in the whole uh, letter that God writes to his people. He says, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. What is our attitude toward the country that we're living in? Whether we like who's in power or not, whether we like who is running the country or not, it says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. What a great command. What a great directive for God's people. Not to seek the destruction of the city in which we live in, just because we don't like who's in power. We don't like our situation and our stance. No, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. And then God continues and he says, well, here's, in fact, here's the verse that a lot of you guys are aware of. A lot of you, some of you have placards of this. Some of you guys have this uh, pinned on your posters, on your wall and your phones. This is where the famous verse 11 it says, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, that's a long period of time. That's a single lifetime for a lot of people. I will come to you, God says, I will fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, to bring God's people back to Israel, but it wouldn't happen for 70 years. But while they were in crisis, he says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That is what God wants for any nation, whether we're doing great or whether we are in crisis. Now, most caring people want to do something positive, like this verse. They want to do something positive to help change the world. We want to change our nation for the better. We want our country to be a place where everyone can grow and be safe and flourish, where everyone will have a chance for a bright future. And here's the, here's the question for us today. How do I make my faith count? How can I help put our nation back together? How can I help unite again these divided states of America? It might even be as, as break it down into a small a unit as how can I help unite my own family? Maybe you've got family members that are arguing with each other over politics right now. I think one of the biggest tragedies in this whole political season is when good Christian people have put their politics over their common faith in Jesus Christ. And God says, you're never to do that. Jesus had something to say about a divided nation. In fact, Jesus uh, had something very strong to say about a nation that was divided. Look what he says, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Do you remember in history, friends, when President Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War said these Bible, this Bible verse to the people of America that were in, a, in an even much more divided time than we are right now? He said, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Every city or household divided against itself will not stand. So Jesus's point is this, you cannot keep a country together if people are constantly trying to tear it apart. Have you ever heard of the term called the fundamental attribution error? 
the fundamental attribution error. It's a cognitive term. It's based on this idea that every single human being, including you and me, we have what is called a cognitive bias. And that is this, when a person attributes somebody else's behavior to their character, right? So let me give an example of that. Um, how do you attribute somebody's behavior to their character? Well, let's say that you're at work and you're with somebody at work and where a person comes in uh, to a meeting and they're late to the meeting and you notice that this is like the third or fourth time in the last month that they've been late to this meeting and you say to yourself, this person isn't just late to the meeting because they had a number of problems outside their control. This person is late to the meeting because they're lazy, because they're irresponsible, and because they're disorganized. Do you see what I just did there? I took an action that somebody had, and now I'm attributing a character to that action. Now, it's interesting we do that to other people. Well, if a person's late, it's because they're lazy, they're irresponsible, and they're disorganized. But what happens if you're late to the meeting? Are, are you saying, well, the reason I'm late to the meeting is because I'm just disorganized and I'm irresponsible and I'm lazy. You, you don't say that about yourself, do you? We judge other people on their actions. We judge ourselves on our intentions. So we say, well, yeah, I'm late to the meeting, but the reason is, is because I was helping the kids get ready for school and I was getting a load in the laundry and, and uh, I had, uh, there was a traffic accident on the road on the way to work or I, somebody called me and they had an emergency and I stopped to talk to them. That's why I'm late. In fact, the reason why I'm late is because I'm so loving and kind and honorable. <laughs> so you see, you can attribute the same action to different intentions. And that's the problem that we're having in our country right now, especially in this political sphere, because we are judging other people. We're prejudging them. We have this cognitive bias called the fundamental attribution error. Now, what are some cognitively biased assumptions that we make in our society today. Well, let's just talk politics for a minute. For a minute. Uh, some, uh, some ways we label people from the other party that are different from us. We say, well, Republicans, they're heartless. They have no heart for the, for the poor and the downtrodden. Democrats, Democrats are corrupt. They lie. They're, you can't trust them. Republicans, they're all racists. Well, how do you know they're racist? Well, we can see into their hearts. Oh, really? You can see into the heart of somebody else and you know exactly what their motives are? Uh, really? Oh, that's interesting. I guess you have the, the ability to be God. And then Democrats, Democrats, they're all socialists, they're communists in sheep's clothing, and, and they're, they're going to change the country fundamentally, and we won't have any freedom anymore. Okay, these are all cognitively based assumptions that we're doing in our society today. We can all get uh, sucked into these stereotypes and prejudices. It's so easy to do. Christians can do it uh, easily as well. Our culture's political rhetoric, it feeds on this kind of stuff. And I, I, I just want to caution us and say, for mature Christian people full of the Spirit of God, who are intelligent, who are empathetic, these kind of people, these mature Christians, they're not going to fall for this. They're not going to fall into these cognitively biased traps. They're better than that. You're better than that. Friends, as followers of Christ, we've all got to be better than that, right? Here's a serious question for you, and it goes way beyond this election year. Think about your world right now. 
Um, and as you talk to other people, you know, some people are so worked up about what they believe and trying to get everybody else to believe what they believe that they, they almost walk around with this chip on their shoulder, right? And you can kind of see it. And these are the kind of people that just want to make a point. So in your world right now, ask yourself the question, as I'm talking to other people and I'm sharing my opinions on whatever's going on in your world today, say, are you there just to make a point or do you want to make a difference? Do you want to make a difference in somebody's life? Let me try to explain the difference between those two. Whoever wants to make a point, it's actually easier. It's easier to make a point than to make a difference because all you have to do to make a point, basically you do a three-step process, right? You take out your big pointer finger and you point your finger at somebody. And then the second step is you open your mouth and you let your angry bile spew out. And then number three is you close your ears because you don't want to listen to what the other person has to say and you just walk away. That's easy to do right? That's called making a point. You don't persuade anybody. You don't make any friends. You don't uh, keep the relationships that you have. You just make your point and walk away. Well, what is different about that? Making a difference is hard. It's a lot harder to do. It takes more time. It takes more effort. It takes more self-control, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It takes longer to make a difference. It will cost you more and it will require personal sacrifice. But the, the, the benefit is so much greater. To make a difference, you see, you invest in the relationship. You are willing to be civil and courteous. You actually want to be friends with somebody even after you have a disagreement in your conversation. So you're not just making a point and saying, well, I got the better of them on that one. Lost a friendship, but I won the point. Hey, by the way, uh, sidebar to us married couples. Have you ever tr done that in your marriage? You were just so interested in making a point with your spouse that you sacrificed the relationship just to make your point. What did you get in the end? That's called winning the battle, but losing the war. And we don't want to do that. You don't want to do that in your marriages. You don't want to do that in your relationships with God's people in his family. You don't want to do that with your neighbors. You don't want to do that with your coworkers. Let's work on bringing back a United States of America and fighting against this divided States of America. There's, there's basically four ways that the early Christians made a difference. You know, how did the early Christians make a difference rather than just making a point, right? Because the early Christians, especially in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, they turn the world upside down in a good way. I mean, I've heard in Acts chapter 17, when it talks about the accusation of the Christians that just got to Philippi, they said, well, these people, they've turned the whole world upside down and now they've come to our city. Actually, it should be this way. Instead of turning the world upside down, these Christians were helping to turn the world right side up. And if we could have that attitude of these early Christians, we might have the influence that they had in their world where within 300 years, this little Christian sect in Judea in a nowhere province in the Roman Empire ended up becoming the majority uh, approved official religion of the Roman Empire within 350 years. It's an amazing development. How did they do that? How did those early Christians make a difference? Well, number one, they built bridges with those whom they disagreed with most. 
They built bridges, not walls, bridges with those they disagreed with most. Now look what the Apostle Paul, when he went to the city of Athens, city of Athens was known to be the most educated uh, place in the world. It would have been like Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Stanford, all rolled into one. All the great educated philosophers in the world loved to make their way to Athens and sit up there on the hill of Areopagus. And, and the Luke, the writer even says, these guys just sat around all day and talked about the latest ideas. And so Paul goes to the city of Athens. He sees a bunch of idols all over the city. He starts talking about Jesus and the Messiah, the Savior, and the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Christ. And they said, well, we need to hear your ideas. So they brought Paul up to where all the philosophers were gathered on the hill, on the Areopagus there in Athens. And Paul says these words. Notice how Paul built a bridge rather than a wall. He said, Paul stood before the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, people of Athens, I can see that you are religious in all things because he saw nothing but idols and statues to idols all over the city. Right? But is that not a way to build a bridge? You're, I, I can see you're very religious in all things. The God who made the whole world and everything in it is the Lord of the land and the sky. He does not live in temples built by human hands. This God is the one who gives life and breath and everything else to people. He does not need any help from them. He has everything he needs. He's saying, you know what? All these idols that are out there, all your concepts of God, let me tell you, there's one God and he's the creator of all and he created everything and he doesn't need a statue to him. He doesn't need an idol made in his name. He has life and breath and we get our life and breath. He created us and he is the one whom we should worship. Paul really made an effort to build bridges with these educated people from a pagan culture. He started with common ground, with the common religiosity, with God being the creator of all. Build a bridge rather than a wall towards somebody else. Be like the first century church. Look what Christ did himself in John's gospel, in the prologue, when it starts describing uh, Jesus as being the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became a human being. Christ incarnated himself into humanity. And then it describes Jesus' attitude. And it says in verse 17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What a difference. The law came through Moses. Do this and you live, disobey God and you will die. Uh, obey God and you'll have a chance to be in right standing with God. Disobey God's commands and you're out right? There's nothing, there's nothing loving or empathetic about that. It's just obey or disobey and suffer the consequences. But look what it says about Jesus. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And here's the point. And this, by the way, this was developed by Pastor Jason Kane in a Bayside church in Blue Oaks. And he said this during a conference on racial reconciliation. And he says, one of the ways that we build bridges to other people is by befriending them, by getting to know them, by listening to their story and their experiences. And he says, when we do that, especially with somebody perhaps from another race, somebody who doesn't look like us or from a different background, a different educational background. And he says, when we do this, he says, proximity, getting close to somebody leads to empathy and empathy leads to unity. 
So one of the ways we get back to unity instead of division in, in our nation's culture right now is we start uh, building bridges to people whom they disagreed with. That's what the early church did. That's number one. Number two, they were, con they were constantly at odds with people they agreed with the most. Now, the apostle Paul, before he became Christ's apostle, he was a Pharisee. He was a leader among the Pharisees, a sect of Judaism, very strict followers of the law. When, when Paul got an opportunity to speak before the Jewish high council in Jerusalem, this is what he said. He said, my brothers, I'm a Pharisee and I stand on trial today because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Now, it's interesting because if you know anything about the Jewish sects, you'll know the Pharisees believed in the resurrection after the dead. Not all Jews believe that, but the Pharisees did. And so Paul is trying to build a bridge with the very people that are trying to put him to death. So uh, the people that disagreed with Paul, he, he was trying to win them over again by saying, look, we all believe in the resurrection of the dead. I just want to tell you about the first goer, the one who overcame sin and death, the one who came out of the tomb alive on the third day, and his name is Jesus. And some of you guys met him. So that's very important. Uh, you know, when it comes to the Bible, the Bible has basically a two-part communication. When the Bible is trying to speak to you and me, communicate its message, there's a message and then there's also a method. And if you and I are trying to communicate the good news of the gospel, you and I bring both a message and a method, right? What is the message? Well, the message is the gospel itself. The method is the attitude in which we bring the message. Now, I can remember going to uh, the Harvest Crusades down in Anaheim at Anaheim Stadium. They have them every summer, usually in mid-late August. Greg Laurie's led those crusades, those evangelistic crusades for about 30 years. And almost every single year, there's somebody out in the parking lot and he's an angry man. He's wearing a sandwich board and he's basically saying, Greg Laurie is leading people to hell, right? Greg Laurie is preaching a false gospel. Greg Laurie is talking about easy believism and you can't go to heaven just by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. So he is actually, uh, even if he believes he has the right message, his method is condemnation, anger, vitriol. Uh, people try to come up and talk with him and he is unreasonable. I remember trying to talk to him one time and he is, he's pretty unreasonable. So the point is, he, he may have had a, a decent message, but his method was so bad. His, his method was so wrong and it was so unloving and unkind. Um, here's an illustration. Um, it's interesting, the difference between conservatives and liberals, right? A conservative believes they have the right message, but they may not have the right method. A liberal may have a better method of being kind and loving and empathetic and sympathetic and wanting to be helped, but they may not have the right message. So anyway, that's a possible interpretation of that. But let me tell you about The Simpsons real quick. The Simpsons, there was an episode, and by the way, it, The Simpsons is an incredible uh, historical record of television, an animated TV show that's been on for more than 25 years, and from what I understand is still going strong. Well, in one of the episodes, the Simpson family has a neighbor family called the Flanders, Ned Flanders and his family. 
And it's known that Ned Flanders and his family are really devout Christians. Uh, I believe they're part of the Assembly of God. And there was one week when the Simpsons noticed that the Flanders house was empty. Nobody was in it. Nobody was coming or going. And they got really concerned about their friends, their neighbors, the Flanders. Well, finally, after a week, the Flanders came back and the Simpsons went over there and they said, hey, what happened? Where were you? And he says, oh, I'm sorry, we forgot to tell you, we went to church camp. And they, and they said, oh, okay. And he says, yeah, we went to church camp and we learned how to be more judgmental. So I, I think to myself, that is not the right method. Whether, whether Ned Flanders had the right message or not, he certainly didn't have the right method by saying, we went to church camp to learn to be more judgmental. If, you, if a church camp is advertising that, please do not go there. Number three, number three, how did the early church build bridges? How did the early Christians make a difference? Number three, they did not try to police behavior with those who were outside the faith. In other words, Christians were not trying to tell non-Christians how to be, how to live like Christians. I, I don't know if that makes sense to you. It makes sense in my head. Christians, when we try to judge or condemn or hold accountable non-Christians because they're not living like Christians, maybe in their sexual activity or something like that, when you try to tell non-Christians to act like Christians before you tell them this is what it means to be a follower of Christ, it, you actually get nowhere. In 1 Corinthians 5, there is a, an episode in the church in Corinth in southern Greece of church discipline. There was sexual immorality going on in the church. The Apostle Paul says, you guys need to stop that. You need to hold that person accountable. You need to discipline that person in sexual immorality. And you need to do something about that. I, and then Paul says, I'm not talking about the society on the outside. I'm talking about within the church family. He says, if we tried to police the people outside the church family, we couldn't, we couldn't fellowship with anybody. You couldn't get along with anybody if, if you only could get along with everyone who believed exactly like you. And the point is, Paul was saying, they, uh, Paul is saying, don't try to police behavior of those who are outside the faith. Try to win them to Christ and then let the Holy Spirit talk to them about their lifestyle and what needs to change to become more like Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of what it means to be a Christian. So that's number three, not trying to police behavior outside the faith. Number four, they were committed to being more than just, quote, against everything. You know, sometimes the church is known so much for what we are against than what we are for. I mean, I'd like to say we are for loving our neighbor as ourselves. I'd like to say we're for taking care of the homeless and feeding them and clothing them and helping them. I'd like to say we are for uh, sending money to agencies that are helping other human beings, whether locally or globally, helping them flourish and find better lives. That's what I hope we would be known for. But instead, most of the time, the church is only known by the outside world for what we are against. You know, that, I guess we, they think we all went to the Ned Flanders family camp and we learned, we just learned to be more judgmental. So we got to be committed to being more than quote, just against everything. Look what Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. He says, you are the light of the world. People put a light on a stand so that it gives light to everybody in the house. And then he says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works 
and glorify your Father in heaven. Friends, when we are full of good works and good deeds, when the, the, the people in society notice that followers of Jesus are actively helping other human beings flourish, and we are helping to repair broken systems in our society, they will appreciate a lot, us a lot more, and I think they'd be more willing to listen to what we have to say. So when we have the right method, which is letting our light shine before men, in other words, to see, our, to, to be full of good deeds, then they can see us and we can win them over. They'll see our method and they might be interested in hearing our message. So I, I want to tell you about a famous Christian guy. His name's Bob Goff. You might see a picture of him there. Bob Goff is a wonderful Christian man. He's so full of joy and laughter. He wrote a book about eight years ago called Love Does. And after he wrote that book, they, he, it was a very popular book. I think it sold over a million copies. He made they, their, their foundation, his ministry, they made a lot of money and they just decided to use it and, get, and give the money away. They built a school in Uganda and they built a school in Somalia in the city of Mogadishu. And so Bob Goff took a trip to Mogadishu even though it was dangerous, Mogadishu is known as a very lawless place. It's a known for a place where there's no government authority, hardly at all, where people are walking down the streets with guns and AK-47s. And so Bob was there to check on the development of the school that they were, they, they were sponsoring the building of. And he's walking down the street and a guy comes up to him in a mask holding an AK-47. And Bob Goff is saying, Oh boy, this could be bad. I'm not sure what he's going to do. So Paul, so Bob Goff decided immediately to pull out his cell phone and he says to the guy loudly in English with a big smile on his face, he says, Hey, do you know what a selfie is? And he got the guy with himself and he got, and he held up his phone and he took a selfie with the guy and he showed the guy the, the photo of them together and he made a friend, he built a bridge <laughs> rather than a wall, may have even saved his life. But it was just a, a wonderful example of finding, and, and this is what Bob Goff says. He says, he says, friends, find people who creep you out and try to make a connection with them. Find people who creep you out, try to make a connection with them. He tried to make a new friend and that's what he did. So let's go back to where we are today, November 1st, two days away from an election. What's gonna happen on Wednesday morning, the day after the election? Where are you gonna be? How are you gonna respond? Friends, I wanna, I wanna urge you to do three things or three things, let me say it in a different way. I want to urge you not to do three things on Wednesday, November 4th, right? Here's three things you should not do. Number one, friends, number one, and this is, this is bigger than any of the other three or the other two. Number one, don't get your eyes off of Jesus, right? Don't get your eyes off of Jesus. Uh, one illustration is uh, for you guys who are into NASCAR racing, right? NASCAR, those fast cars that go around the track, uh, you know, left turn, left turn, left turn, umpteen times until 500 miles are gone and everybody can't breathe anymore because of the pollution. Sidebar comment, sorry. Um, NASCAR racing, 
Uh, one thing you'll notice in all the NASCARs is the hoods of the cars. The hoods of the cars almost always have a corporate sponsor logo. Do you see who's the corporate sponsor of this particular car? Kroger, right? Kroger is probably like Safeway or Raley's in the South, a very big, well-known supermarket chain, right? Uh, it, is, it is now understood that in order to get that logo on the hood of that NASCAR, the corporate sponsor pays $660,000, not per year, $660,000 per race to have that car run in the race and represent them on the hood of the car. Uh, it is huge. The, the other decals around, you can see some of the other decals. I think there's a Cheerios and, and something else on the side of the car, but uh, they cost far less. They never get those little smaller sponsors. They, they never get the coverage of the big sticker. The big bold sticker on that car on the hood, that is what represents, that's what the car represents the most. And here's, here's the point. If we keep our eyes on Jesus, then no matter what happens during the election, we, we are going to have the sticker of Jesus on the hood of us. We are going to have the identity of Jesus. We're going to have the stamp of Jesus on each one of us. We keep our eyes on Christ. He's the most important thing no matter what happens. The stamp of Christ should be the biggest sticker on our car. I hope you understand the metaphor. Number two, don't let anything divide you. Don't let anything divide you. Not your marriage, not your closest relationships, not your church. Keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Don't let politics get in the way. In fact, this is probably the most political, non-political message that I've given since I've been here at the church. I'm, I, I really think it's important for us as a church not to be political because that tends to cause division. So don't let anything divide you. And then number three, don't lose hope. Do not lose hope. Lamentations 3, this is very interesting. Lamentations 3 was also written by the prophet Jeremiah. We talked about him before in that letter to the exiles. In this particular book, after his prophecy, he wrote a book of lament. A lament is a time of grieving, a time of mourning, a time of great sadness after a major loss in life. And the book of Lamentations was a poem that Jeremiah wrote after the fall of Jerusalem, after it was taken over, the temple was burned, uh, the Babylonians took many of the Jews into exile, and Jeremiah was left there, and he wrote this book of lament. And here's the, but here's the thing. Jeremiah, even in the midst of his whole world falling apart, Jeremiah did not lose hope. Why? Look what he says. How did he not lose hope? He says, yet this I call to mind. And therefore, I have hope. Jeremiah had to discipline himself to say, I'm not going to look around at everything falling apart around me. I'm not going to focus on all the destruction, all the terrible things happening. I'm going to focus myself. I'm going to call to mind to make a conscious decision to focus on God instead. Therefore, I have hope. And, and look what he says. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. I love that song. Your love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me, right? You, God's love never fails. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. When you wake up tomorrow morning, God's compassions are going to be there for you. 
Why? Because God is faithful. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. So there's a way to keep your hope in God. Keep call to mind God's faithfulness and his compassions, his mercies. They are new every single morning. I want to give you a final illustration. New York City. There's a great big building there. It's, it's over 700 feet tall. It's called the Chase Building. Anybody bank with Chase? We do. <laughs> uh, so there's your headquarters. If I need to go talk to the head honcho, I guess I'll have to go there. In that city, the Chase uh, Building, it was built about uh, over 50 years ago. And when they were building that building, as they were building it, they noticed that much of Manhattan, by the way, that 13-mile island there in New York City, much of that island is 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 right over bedrock and the bedrock is not very far down that's why in the south part of manhattan where they have all the big buildings that's where the bedrock is closest to the surface to the surface this building the chase building is built more in the middle of the town of manhattan and they ran into a problem because before they got to the bedrock they found that while they were digging for the foundation they ran into a bunch of quicksand and here was the problem. If they built that building on quicksand, that building would not stay upright vertically. That building would be in trouble uh, structurally. And if it fell down or collapsed, it could damage the buildings around it. And so they ran into a real crisis. Well, what was the solution? Science. Science was the solution because they came in with two particular chemicals and I'm looking for the chemicals right here. They found a solution. They took some pipes and they injected a solution right down into the quicksand. The solution was a combination of sodium silicate and calcium chloride. And if you know your chemistry, you'll know that when those two uh, items are injected into the quicksand, it turns the quicksand into sandstone. It turns something that is liquid and unstable into something that is solid, something you can build on. And that was because those two ingredients were injected into the quicksand. So I, I just wanna say that the way we're gonna have hope, the way we're gonna win our culture, the way we were going to make it through and keep our eyes on Jesus uh, through this, this trying season for the divided States of America's friends is we need to have that injection of hope and, and Christ in our lives. You'll, when we do, we're gonna find healing, we're going to find forgiveness, and we're going to find strength, and we're going to find hope. Jesus in your life always brings hope. Let me, let me just say this in closing, because we're, it's not just a, a divided election season we're going through. You know, we're, we're having an economic crisis, we're having a COVID crisis, and we're having an election season all at once. So yeah, way to go 2020. Um, COVID, but here's some things that, that cannot happen. For a Christ follower who has his, his focus on Christ, who's saying, this I call to mind and therefore I have hope, how can that happen in your life? Well, COVID cannot stop compassion. Disruption cannot stop discipleship. And a pandemic cannot stop your purpose. Why is that? Because we have something that nobody can take away from us. We have the hope of a living relationship with a savior who conquered sin and death. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit 
who was given to us. That is why we can have hope. Jesus in your life will always bring us hope. So as Christ followers, friends, full of the Holy Spirit, we can build bridges with other people, we, other people even that we disagree with. We can stop policing behavior of those who are outside God's family, and we can be committed to doing good and making a difference, not just a point, to those around us. Amen? Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to pause and think of where we need to be as Christ followers in a pivotal time in our nation's history. Lord, in you we find hope. Lord, in you we put our trust. When we are afraid, your word tells us, I put my trust in you. Why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. And that hope, Lord, that you give us does not disappoint. Thank you, Lord, that when we believed and put our trust in Jesus, you poured out your Holy Spirit into our hearts and you filled them with hope and joy and purpose and eternity. That no matter what happens in this life, no matter what happens to us, we call this to mind and in this we have hope. That your mercies are new every morning, your compassions never fail. Lord, we count on that as we put our trust in you. We pray these things and all God's people together said, Amen.